Blog Talk Radio. Greetings, greetings, greetings. It's another powerful rendition of revolutionary hoodoo, New Orleans hoodoo secrets and recipes. Come on in, in. The fire is hot, the water is hot. Thank you. 
Divine, all blessed greetings and salutations. You are now sitting live with the Divine Prince, Pan-African spiritualist, practitioner, author, advisor, Elogun Oloye, Hudu Obeya Bokur, sharing with you in all things mystical, spiritual, metaphysical, cosmic, universal, evolutionary, revolutionary, healing, and holistic from a Pan-African hoodoo, world spiritualist perspective, understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veil, what is all just an illusion and a test and one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. This is indeed my constant prayer, my mantra, my affirmation and reverberation. It is my reiteration and my ever-living reality. All as a blessing is crucial, crucial to the very foundation of my inner standing, my being, my walk, my works, my demonstration along this divine, all-blessed life path and journey. It is how I, the divine prince, make sense out of all that we're challenged with here in our daily existence on Mother Father Earth. And it is my personal place of power and understanding. It is the place from where I begin, the place from where I realize and crystallize all my endeavors, understanding that I and I alone create and co-create my divine destiny, and I and I alone create and co-create my divine all-blessed reality. And so it is, I say. Ay, Bobo. Today is Monday, May 17th, 2021, and I am emanating and vibrating with you now and for you live, virtually, verbally, cosmically, quantum universally from this working temple of the House of the Divine Prince. Thai Potions, Hoodoo Central LLC, in this beautiful, historic, most enchanted city in America, New Orleans, Louisiana, the land of my ancestors and those who came before me along this hoodoo obeya life path and journey, passing down the great obeya stick along with the knowledge of the life-giving herbs, roots, plants, rituals, spirits, minerals, and indeed, as our beloved Denise Augustine says, our sacred stories, indeed our sacred stories. I'm also always humbled and honored and appreciative by my special co-host, my cousin Oloye Ifawole, Odadeji Ifantade. I'm always grateful and honored by your participation in the show, you bringing that Ifa perspective from your understanding, me bringing this Louisiana voodoo uh, perspective from, from my experience and understanding. And I'm getting a lot of feedback about the show in emails, in private phone calls, in chat. Many people, the direction the show is moving in, the direction the show has 
evolved too. And so for that, I'm grateful. For that, I'm grateful. Um, so I welcome you, beloved. I, I appreciate you. Um, I might want to talk a little bit about DNA today because I got so many new relatives now on my uh, on my Ancestry.com. I feel like I need to do a roll call. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you, beloved. Greetings. I see. Uh, good morning to everybody. I hope everybody is doing well. God bless you all. Uh, I offer the prayer of, of reverence to everyone. Uh, we say Mojiba. So we say Mojiba Lumare. Over to the Kai. Mojiba to a Ojo. Mojiba to a Rum. Mojiba Ilegiri of Tokiri. Mojiba a Roman at the letter, a pen at the Kedja Lumare. Mojiba Iba a Roman at Ochkusin. Mojiba Iba a Roman at Ochkusin. Mojiba Okama is a Rimo Rumare. Mojiba Akora. Mojiba Astera. Mojiba Arabo to me and I have it. Mojiba Boba is a Pata Pata. Mojiba Iyame, so long ago, one year since you are. Mojiba Bumbu Meleme, Mojiba Baba, Mojiba Yi, Mojiba Alu, Mojiba Bona, Mojiba Kabia, Sipic Beneficent Sola, Mojiba, Le Araba, the Sanya, Yade, Mojiba to Baba Fatimo, Mojiba to all of the Orisha, Mojiba to all of our ancestors, Mojiba to all of our Orini, Mojiba to all of our God family throughout the diaspora. Here listening to the show all over the world. So I give honor and give thanks and give reverence to each and every one and your audience. I shall. We certainly are, are appreciative and honored by your um, eloquence and your fluency um, within the language. And I think that's very important for many who are actively uh, walking in the path um, of Ifa practice um, to hear it, to hear it. And to hear it again and, and to be a part of the vibration um, that is intoned with the blessings, with, with the prayers, with the mojubas, with the ibas. So, of course, I'm, I'm indeed grateful. Um, and particularly on a day like this, with, with such a trigger-laden topic, breaking generational curses, I invite you to participate. I already have phone callers online who, who are waiting to speak and, and to share I invite you all as well to plug in your webcams, turn on your microphones, follow the link that is now scrolling at the bottom of the screen, and please do be a part of this conversation. I've been thinking about generational curses in general, but more importantly, breaking them um, for years, um, and particularly in the last six or seven months, um, my own triggers are often coming through my clients and my callers. I think it's important that we bring our heart and our experience and our heads and our awareness to ministry, to practice. For indeed, this is what gives us the power and the gift and the skill to address the dilemmas and the dark areas um, of, of our callers' lives and our clients' lives. And so, you know, the issues of, you know, black women in struggle, black men in struggle, black children, you know, in struggle, and indeed families all over the world, you know, aside from pandemics and food shortages and gas shortages and politics, but just the struggles that exist within the dynamics of our families and ultimately our relationships. Um, so that trigger for me has been hit, that bell has been rung, 
And, and so I've been praying on it, meditating on it, doing a ritual over it. Um, what would ancestors have me to say? What would the Most High have me to bring about generational curses and indeed breaking generational curses? Uh, many of you know my story. I was on the street at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I had a very violent, crazy father, abusive, molester, a pedophile, a polygamist, a bigamist, and numerous children that, that we still can't enumerate fully. Um, in doing my research into ancestry, um, an unfortunate reality is I saw that in my bloodline, particularly within the Broomfield family. And, yes, I'm calling names today. Maybe not first names, but I'm certainly going to speak to the family names of, of my own experience. And so within the dynamics of that Broomfield family, I found very common, repeated patterns and traits. And religious folk, spiritual folk, and now even today, um, pagans and spiritual practitioners are, are now speaking more openly and directly to generational curses, what they are, how they operate, and indeed how to break them. Uh, I knew at five years old. And before I move on in the story, I was watching the last final episode of Iyana Van Zandt Fix My Life. You all do understand she quit and she's not coming back to do Fix My Life anymore. And she shared to some degree her reasoning behind it. Um, she's tired of getting re- you know, ran over in social media. She's tired of black people having really negative and bad things to say about what she's doing and how she's operating. I also believe from my own experience, um, she's degraded just a little bit in that reality TV spectrum. Many people don't know in its entirety what Iyana Van Zandt is doing. Many people don't know entirely what I'm doing in terms of how I operate in, in, in ministry. Um, we, we know, those of us who know, know that Iyana wears the ID. We know that Iyana is initiated and operating within the system of EFA, but she don't talk about it a whole lot on her program. She don't talk about it a whole lot. I think if you know it and you recognize it, you see it. It shows up in some of her ritual work, her healing work. It shows up in some of her of her language. But she's quitting that show because she's getting so much just negativity, usually from people who aren't doing the work, who ain't interested in doing the work, who have their own blocks, issues, complications as it relates to addressing and doing that work. And so as someone who's in social media, many of us are in social media, we understand that that's a war zone. And it's often not a friendly one. And so it is why I operate in the way that I do, both on air and off air, both virtually and here on the ground in in New Orleans. Um, I try and avoid drama and my own triggers as much as possible. But that one place where I'm not entirely safe, not that I'm in fear or in danger, but where I'm not entirely safe is in the consultation. It's in the consultation. And I hear stories of women accepting things less than what a queen should accept, less than what a goddess should put up with. 
I hear stories of men in struggle with their career, with their education, with the judicial system, with the law, and it hits every trigger for me. It, it, it brings up my own past. Um, I also watched uh, season three, episode four of Pose. I know some of you watch Pose. I'm talking particularly of the Take, it, uh, Take Me to Church episode. That episode was called Take Me to Church. Um, and they did. <laughs> you know, they brought the church, the music, the experience. And I was so captivated at how much of my own past is in that episode. How I was treated by the church as a young person, though I was one of the best singers in my church, one, one of the best pianists in my church, one of the most active ministers of music in my church. Um, and, and like many, I went through hell and back to exist. I won't say survive because I, I eventually got out of that environment, but to just exist in that environment. And, and now today I hear and I experience many who are now seeking to survive within the dynamics of not just that quote-unquote church environment, but then how that shows up in our families. And before you all get started, I don't want to hear, I, I don't go to church and I don't believe in, we, we get that. We, we get that. But when we look at who we are as a people, who we are as a family, who we are as, as being born in America, the religion is, is crammed down our throat from day one. The, the religion is all around you. It's in the holidays. It's on your money. It, it, it's, in the, it's in the school system. It's in the politics, though, though we say there's a separation of church and state. But it's deeply, deeply enrooted in, in our society, in our culture, and in many of our families. And I'm often asked the question why. I asked this question the other day just in a different way. Why do we, men and women, young people, accept what brings us pain, accept what brings us discomfort except what brings us this ease now i said before cousin you know there, there's a place for uh a, a disciplined acceptance of a certain amount of pain but particularly mm-hmm. if we're talking about martial arts working out athletics there's a contract that you make with yourself mm-hmm. to push through to get to the next level to push through to build up your muscle and, and your strength but that's not taught emotionally in our, in our culture. That's not taught spiritually in our culture. And we often tuck these generational curses away. We often tuck these bad experiences away, and we seek to outrun them, outgrow them, forget them, uh, pretend that they don't exist, you know, in our space anymore. And then we see them showing up in our relationships, showing up in our children. How many times do we hear, well, I don't know where he got that from, but, but, but if I can just take five minutes to get into the dynamics of who mom and daddy was, who, who grandma and grandpa was, I often can, can draw a line back to the generational curse. And many of these curses, so negative, so egregious, and particularly within the dynamics of my own, the Broomfield portion of my family, um, no one wants to discuss that. And, and very few are skilled to discuss it. So we develop this mythology 
about who who our families are and who our families were. You know, this this royal Egyptian bloodline, this this royal um, uh, indigenous American bloodline that that somehow if it weren't for the interference, you know, of the man and, and colonization, we would be living some perfect existence. That's a mythology, and, and it doesn't mirror the truth of living life on life's terms. And, and with that comes weather. And so there are the storms and there is the, you know, the changes in climate. There are the things that we have to prepare for, protect for, endure for. But again, that's not taught emotionally. That's not taught spiritually. And so we, we seek things that seem acceptable from pop cultural perspective. And I, and I say pop cultural, I'm talking about all your advertisement, all your media, all your music, what is said and or demonstrated in art, what is said and or demonstrated in our culture that has a great deal of money and, and, and machinery behind it. Someone chooses what we see every day on TV. Someone chooses, you know, to some degree, the advertisements that, that we are bombarded with, you know, in social media. And often those subliminal messages support the dysfunction, support the tucking away the pain, the hiding away from the pain, the the somehow artificially separating ourselves from the pain. So when we say shadow work, this this new word, this new phraseology, shadow work is probably about five years old. We didn't say that in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, but but it's a great word to describe that which we tuck away, which we hide, which we don't want to discuss, you know, which our parents, for whatever reason, decide that, you know, it's better for me to just pick up and move forward and and not share my pain with my child, not share my story. And and I'm going to say from personal experience, that is one of the most damaging things you can do for your children is to not share your story. It's not share your pain because often, you know, the imagination takes over, the ego takes over, and then it becomes about me or or it becomes something that we make up in our head about why I'm treated a certain way, why mom and dad act a certain way. And then we carry that out into our relationships in the world. And so some of you are walking around with with a self-imposed target on your back. Everybody's out to get you. Everybody's out to harm you. Everybody's looking to undercut you, and we don't and are not willing to look back at our own shadow work, what kind of fluids and, you know, amniotic fluids and emotion and spirit did we nurture in, did we marinate in with mama? What kind of power and, and experience was in that blood and in that semen of dad that, that became a part of who we are? And so a lot of these feelings are detached in reality from, from their source and from their root. So that's what, in my house, dealing with confronting generational curses, healing and breaking generational curses, we got to get back to the root of things. So before I pass the mic, cousin, um, I, I just want to acknowledge some people. Of course, all my family I already know and have some relationship with. Uh, Kimberly Joy, Joyce Harris, Yvette Mosaic, Isaac Harris, Sianna Durrett, 
Norvell Powell Jr., Julian Maurice, Maurice Broomfield, family that I know, Lakeithia Mims, yeah, family that I know. Uh, but I also want to acknowledge all this new family. Oh, my goodness, Lala, Cameron, um, Bill Owens, Trevor Owens, uh, Trina Young, Sherwin Robinson, Christine Hollis, uh, Kenneth Dotson. You know, I say all the time, Ancestry.com owe me some money. <laughs> Ancestry.com and 23andMe owe me some money because I know for a fact many people have explored this because of what I've said or because of what my cousin said, you know, and, and, and have gone into really looking at ancestry and doing the work of, of um, ancestral work and divination, ancestral healing, ancestral acknowledgement, ancestral power. So I'm, I'm grateful for the technology and the ability to access people that I otherwise would not know. I would love to know some of these new people. I have maybe 30 new people in Ancestry.com. I haven't quite checked 23andMe yet. Uh, But I'm grateful for the ability to see and feel your love and your experience, you know, know your story, know your history, and better understand how we interconnect in the family tree. We don't all still understand exactly who is related to what but how. We just know we're blood-related. We just know we're blood-related, and it's in our genes, and it's in the DNA, and for some of us, that's good enough. Uh, I noticed that you, um, Cousin, and, and, and myself and a few others, you know, we reach out to these people that show up mm-hmm. in these lists. We, we attempt to build a relationship. But then there are others, some of them I know very well, <laughs> you know, sisters, brothers, first cousins, you know, who, for whatever reason, it's not a judgment, but, but they want the information. Clearly, they want the information because they're on the site. Uh, but they don't do a whole lot of reaching out. They don't do a whole lot of communicating, and I think that can um, impede our ability to gain power from this information, to not only break the generational curses, but to receive a certain degree of personal power, ancestral power from knowing who we are and how we got here. So I'm grateful for my Louisiana bloodline. Um, on my dad's side, and to some degree on my mom's side, and I'm grateful for my mother's side, that Gullah Geechee nation. <laughs> I'm grateful for you, the mm-hmm. earliest of African Americans to be present in the new colonies. That, that's my bloodline, and I'm grateful. Um, I also want to welcome our beloved Otan, Ifa Tomiwash. He's clearly ready to be present with us again today, and we're grateful. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> now, you know, this, this is a trigger-laden show, Generational Curses. So, you know, <laughs> Generational Curses is what we're talking about today and how to break them. Listen, I don't want this to be a pity party. We're not just going to waddle in our pain and, and, and our stories, but we really want to talk about breaking these Generational Curses. And so Oloye Ifawole, my cousin beloved, is going to share from his perspective, and then Otan, my other cousin, go share from her perspective. And then I'm going to go to my phone lines. I do have um, callers on the phone line already with their hands raised, um, and we'll be coming to the phone lines very shortly. 
So let me then make this short because I want to encourage the uh, participation with everybody. I think we can have a wonderful, wonderful experience today. And each one of us hopefully will be able to grow. Uh, blessings to Mother Savage. I see you here. Um, yes. Uh, and so let's talk about this. You know, triggers are an interesting thing. I, I want to say it's an interesting phenomenon, but I, I don't know if I want to go that far. But triggers are an interesting thing. Because when we look at triggers, a lot of times we don't look at it in its full capacity. We don't look at it that it could be something all the way stemming back inside of our DNA, generational remembrance, I would say. Uh, when, it talks, when we talk about uh, triggers from the past, from ancestors, as well as from our elders, you know, ancestral uh, triggers that still manifest in, in, inside of our DNA, our bloodline, that says when certain things present themselves, it automatically brings in our consciousness, our inner conscious, a reaction because it evokes a remembrance inside of our DNA that says, ah, this right here, in one way, shape, or form, it's almost like I remember it. And if we look at it from an African perspective, an African perspective says that we are reborn. So therefore, and possibly in past life, which would be why it's part of our generational remembrance, would say that we possibly went through in our past life something like this already, and that we also remember our ancestors in going through this, or something within our ancestors and the stories of our ancestors helped us to kind of uh, embrace this thing and hold on to some of these triggers. When I look at these triggers from ancestors and elders, I look at these triggers stemming back all the way yet from slavery, but let's look at it from Jim Crow. Jim Crow, some of our elders and, uh, are, are still alive that dealt with Jim Crow. And the, the manifestations, the, 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 the things that happened in Jim Crow, anywhere from dealing with whites only this, not being able to go to school that, having to have police escorts to school. There are still people alive that were, doing, that were dealing with the police escorts as they were little kids to make it to school with the, the people spitting on them and, and hurling racial epithets and all of those things. That person, therefore, even if they've embraced it and they've tried to let it go, there's still a remembrance of that within them, in their mind, in their spirit, in their conscience, and hopefully it will break though before it gets to the next generation. So then we, we talk about COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO was another form that we as people went through because uh, uh, Hoover said, and I paraphrase this, that the most uh, uh, dangerous people were, were the, the black uh, groups of black organizations, black people, when they, when they form and gather together. And that's paraphrasing because I know that's not exactly how he said it. And then we look at today. And what's happening today is going to be, we already still remember yesterday, Probe, I was alive for that. My cousin was alive for that. Most probably my cousins were alive for that. 
uncles and aunts and everybody worldwide going to Cointel Pro. And now you look at today, again, we're replaying part of this in the killing of our unarmed black men and black women and black children. So generational curses and, and the generational challenges and struggles are that which we are still replaying in our mind today like a like a record, like a like watching a movie. It's extremely difficult. And now when you look at the present, what generational curses are gonna be left that's still with our elders, but with us today that we're going through, and then unfortunately what's going to be the ramifications for our future generations? We gotta really go down deep within the core of this because we're still having to face these things every single day, every single moment of time. When I think back, I think back, even in, in, we always got this thing about black men and losing the family and, and walking out on the family. But yet I remember back in the 1970s, the movie Claudine with James Earl Jones and Diane Cowan and how in that movie and in real life, in real life, that any time a man was around, they were trying to deny the black woman the ability to take care of the kids and give them the money. I remember that the, 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 the big message that was in that movie. And then toward the end of the movie, they got tired of hiding everything that, they, that, that was given as a gift and all of that, right? And, and then uh, James Earl Jones was like, uh, nah, I'm done with this. I'm not hiding anymore. We're not hiding anymore. And, and, and then he took on the responsibility of all the kids that were not his and took them in as his own and, and, and moving forward. There's so many subliminal messages, as you said, that deals with what is being shown to us, what we're hearing and listening to, and our personal experiences that not, we're not maybe embracing, and that the experiences of our elders and our ancestors that are still with us that we might not acknowledge and we might not be embracing. Generational curses are a deep thing. This is going to be a wonderful uh, uh, discussion. Yeah. I don't know too much about it, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work it out, and all of us will get through it together. Well, I know a lot about it, <laughs> and I got a lot to say. Uh, oh, Tom, beloved, uh, please offer us your greetings and your uh, opening comments, and then I'm going to go to the phone line. Hey, Abobo Aboye, Aboshishe, Divine Prince, Baba Aloye, and family, everyone watching. Uh, running behind today for part of my tardiness, but I have been, it's been powerful since the moment I stepped in here. I've been listening, and, and again, I appreciate and give thanks uh, always. Maya Luo, Prince Baba, Adabayo Latona, and Olari, Ipatoyen, Yalodoro, Dominique, Oyobola, Latona. Generational curses. Um, I can speak to a couple that I have um, had to be working in, and I'm currently still working through, as it's not an overnight thing. I can say that I agree with everything Brother Lloyd said, and even what I heard from the Divine Prince, and I will say it takes a lot of work. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, and if it's not something that's handled um, or, or, or taken control of, 
it's not just about us, especially if a person has children. You're looking at things that until they're broken, they're going to keep repeating itself. The cycles are going to continue. And what we don't want is for each generation to not just continue the cycle, but to increase it or make it worse. We want to make sure that we're doing that work. And also, generational curses, they're hard because it requires a long, hard look at self, self-reflection. And that means not in a group of people, meaning can you stand in your face in that mirror and say, okay, what is it about my energy attracting this issue? What is it about my energy that I'm putting out that's pulling in all of this that I don't want that does not serve me? So we have to be really willing to do that in the work and the dive deep because generational curses ain't easy. They have to, it requires work because the only way to destroy them is by doing the work. So this is definitely going to be a powerful, powerful session. And I look forward to learning, growing, um, sharing, and, and healing, healing with everyone. Awesome. Thank you. And I'm going to go to the phone lines next, Eric code um, 504. Uh, and, and when we come back, I also want to further explore his comment or her comment uh, about banging against a wall of silence, you know, mm-hmm. within our families. Uh, again, mama don't want to tell the story or can't remember the story. Grandma don't want to tell the story, can't remember the story. Grandpa don't want to tell the story. And how we believe that if, if we don't talk about it, if we don't discuss it, it, it somehow vaporizes. And then it shows up again, like diabetes, like heart problems. It might skip a generation, but then somewhere it shows up again because energy is eternal. Energy is is eternal. It is said scientifically at the beginning of the universe, at the Big Bang, all the energy that was ever to be created was created in that moment. So, So we're literally recycling good, recycling positive energy, recycling negative energy. And it has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. Uh, that was symbolically demonstrated in the, in the Bay of Pigs story, you know, in the Bible, that, that that demon, that energy, that legion had to go somewhere and, and, and requested to be sent into, into the pigs. And, and then the pigs ran into the water and, and, and drowned, if you will, the, the demons, the spirits, the jinn. So, there are many ways that we can uh, attack and discuss and share uh, this topic. I absolutely want to talk a little bit more um, about that wall of silence. And there was another question I wanted to address. Um, uh, I think Goddess Initiative was was mentioning uh, organizations and and leaders that have done great things within our our community um, to sort of create a, a more healthy environment for us to address our own stuff. And they're constantly being discredited, criminalized, under attack, um, et cetera. Um, so I'm going to go to the phone lines now before I digress too far away. Um, Erico 504, who's calling and where are you calling from? Greetings, Erico 504-810. Did you have a question or a comment? Okay, I'm going to assume that you're just listening. Um, so you can just press the number one and lower your hand, and then when you have a question or a comment, I'll be, I'll be more than happy to uh, bring you into the, the conversation. 
Yes, I want to talk about that wall of silence and um, sort of from what the Goddess Initiative is sharing in the chat. I also want to talk more about men, and particularly black men. I've always said that, you know, there is space for women to heal and to come together and to be emotional and to work through, you know, some of their, their, their complexities together or, or in a safe environment. We don't always see that for men and particularly for black men. So, so if, if we hear one more man say, you know, I was raised by the streets, you know, because father wasn't there. You know, and then there's a certain negation of mother's influence when we say I was raised, you know, by the streets. We also, within that wall of silence, um, sometimes negate responsibility. I know as I, you know, came out into the world, you know, as a young teenager, you know, on the streets, it was all my father's fault in my head. It was all my dad's fault. My dad was a devil. You know, he had done all these, these bad and negative things and created this environment, and now I'm out here, you know. And that mythology that I talked about kept my mother sort of mythologized, you know, at, at, at this untouchable place, in a place that did not afford her responsibility, that didn't afford her accountability. And so everything was my dad's fault. Somewhere around 30, 33, that began to shift as me and my mother developed a more personal relationship um, and grew together, you know, as adults. And that energy began to shift, primarily motivated by her own desire to accept responsibility, to accept, um, um, uh, what's the the word, Um, to take charge of her own accountability, that's the word, within the dynamics of what went on you know, in our household, what went on in our family. I grew up, you know, along with all the abuse, I grew up in a very black family in Chocolate City, the the DMV, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, uh, during the late 60s going into the early 70s. I grew up in a household where we weren't allowed to watch a lot of, quote, unquote, pop culture. We weren't allowed to watch a lot of, you know, white television. We could watch the news. We could watch documentaries. You might see a diversity of people there, you know, or even white people there. But in terms of entertainment, no, no Happy Days, no no Lil' Vernon Shirley. You know, we had to sort of hide to watch those programs uh, in my household. And then as I got a little bit older, I found out my dad was almost addicted to watching TV in a lot of these programs. Uh, that we as children were not allowed to to view and partake in. And so I grew up in a very black family during the time of the Black Power Movement, during the time of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the the late 60s going into the 70s. Um, And so I was blessed, and and I do count it a blessing to have been raised in the DMV. Uh, I could escape. I could get on the subway. I could get on the metro. I could go to every... Smithsonian Institute building, you know, in D.C., um, and get lost there for hours, but also explore culture, diversity, uh, other areas of consciousness and awareness that I might not have otherwise been exposed to. So so I credit that, you know, along with the power of of the ancestors and, and voodoo for saving my life 
from the generational curses. Um, I started mentioning earlier that I watched that last episode of Yolanda Van Zandt, uh, the one about men and, and dealing with men's issues. And she brought in that the, the black doctor uh, to, to speak to the men, you know, in the men's space. Um, and for me, that, that also reignited, you know, this concept that I've had for years that that healing space is often not provided for us. Or when it is provided for us, men are often in resistance to it. Things have to be physical, uh, threat of law, threat of life and limb, uh, threat of imprisonment, you know, or, or the mother of the children, the wife, the girlfriend sort of backs them into a corner, you know, and, and then there might be a, a, a cry out for help or, or seeking out of help. But creating that safe space for men to really address uh, sometimes at the emotional level um, their own pain, their own trauma um, has always been one of my goals. And, and I would like to see that manifest in our ministries, in our ELAs, in our voodoo houses in a way that's proactive. Before we get to, you know, oh, my son is in jail, can, can you help me out? Be- before we get to, you know, my uncle was murdered, you know, and, and we're going to have a second line in, in, in a funeral. Before we get to sort of the physicalness of it, uh, whereas, again, women, it, it shows up at an emotional level often through relationships, their relationships to their partners, their relationships to their children, their relationship to themselves and the world. And, and society has sent out sort of a cue that it's okay for a woman to be emotional. Society has even uh, prejudged women as being extra emotional, which I don't accept. I think we're all emotional. I think we all require a space to be emotional. Uh, your emotions, your feelings are always real, even when they don't line up with the facts. But your feelings and emotions are always real. And therefore, they show up in, in, in our behavior in our addictive behaviors and how we have a relationship to money and how we have a relationship to, to love and relationships to, and how we have a relationship to ego and society. Uh, my cousin talked about, you know, black men being dem- demonized from, from the womb, be- being on alert from the womb, being in fear of the law and the government from the womb. And that leaves a generational curse footprint, energy, on all of us, that if we don't address it directly, uh, it, it shows up again. And, and, and it may not show up directly with you, but, but it might show up then with your children, with your children. Uh, this last episode of Yolanda that I'm referencing, uh, the father's wife had pancreatic cancer, passed away. The boys were very young, and he's a passive type of father. Um, which is really unusual, particularly in the black community. Uh, he said the mother was always the discipline. The mother was always, you know, sort of the sergeant. And so when she passed, so so did the discipline. And he didn't know how to stand up and provide structure for the boys. He didn't want to see them hurt. It's always from a good place. He didn't want to see them hurt. He didn't want to say no to them. He didn't want to see them denied anything. And so the the boys during this therapeutic session with, with Iyanla, at least one of the boys, acknowledged that, that we took, uh, you know, we took charge. 
and we took uh, advantage of dad. And we knew dad was a cool dad, so, so we, we ran over him, and we did what we wanted. We operated how we wanted. But, but the more the doctor and Yana pressed the dad to tell his story, well, his mother died at a young age and left the father to raise the family, to be mom and dad. And, and men, and if anyone wants to correct me, are not taught how to be mom and dad. We hear it all the time from a single-headed female household. I'm mom and dad. We hear black women say that. But how often do we hear black men say I'm mom and dad and, and, and step into that role? So there's something there, you know, which is why I want my cousin and, and Otan to speak to this, um, that is addressed, I believe, in ATR tradition in a way that's not addressed in the West. Well, definitely. You know, we can even go to 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 Odu. Odu Osa Irete. It says the flood has no host. It, it uses its mouth to dig a, uh, to dig the ground until it reaches the red soil. This was the Ifa caste, but Isheshe traditionalism. Who was the highest form of worship? One's mother is one's Isheshe. Father is one's Isheshe. One's ori is one's isheshe. Alugamare is one's isheshe. Isheshe is the first propitiated in Ife before receiving all blessings. Let us propitiate isheshe, uh, the father of all uh, propitiations. So what is it saying? It, it talks about in the Odu that our mother, our father, our ori, our or we, our divine consciousness, and how in ourselves we have to be working with our own divine consciousness to clear out of ourselves that which we know is a struggle within us. So how do we begin the process of breaking the, the generation? We can't go to anybody else to force them to break it. The change has to be within yourself to break it for yourself and at least acknowledge it. We might not be able to fully break it, but we can surely acknowledge it and be honest about it and then beginning to begin to do the work with that area to try to heal that area and then also be teaching others, listen, you know, I noticed that you're going through some of the same challenges that I am, you know, we gotta be we gotta be watching this because now our kids are seeing this. So it's a lot about our poquito, uh, uh, our honesty, our truthfulness with what it is that we're viewing, what it is that we're feeling, and then what it is that we're seeing in others, so that we can help others to break it. So you know, one's mother is one's isheshe. That means. When we're in connection with our mothers, we're also connection with the positive and sometimes the negative. The same thing with father. One's father is is one's isheshet. One's father has the positive and the negative traits, as well as the ancestral traits from both sides of those lineages. One's ori is one's isheshet. One's internal divine consciousness and their relationship with the creator, 
but more so their relationship within themselves and what it is that they are willing to do to sacrifice to make the changes that will allow any generational things within themselves to be able to break. How do we say that? How do we look at that? Well, we look at it from saying this side, that side, and now me, I have the opportunity within focusing on my healing, my inner healing, what, what I guess what a lot of people you, you call it shadow work, uh, and, and going inside to do that work and being honest and being willing to feel the pain that goes along with some of it in order to make changes. But some of us don't acknowledge, even in our, not even in our relationships with our family, but in our relationships, in our leadership, in, in all areas, what was it that we have experienced in our life that forces us to make certain decisions, both positive and negative, that affects now those people that might be following us, which goes back to now as we're priests, all three of us. We now have to even be more in contact with our own stuff so that that stuff that is within us doesn't resonate to stuff that other people are going to, that they're coming to us to help, to help, because we can't break it for them. We can assist in guiding them in directions and giving them tools. But the tools, if they're not being used, become rusty and they, 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 they break apart, right? So now, what is it that, we're, that, that we are going to be doing for ourselves so that we're the perfect example uh, we're the example, I don't know about the perfect example, but the example for people to see in us the work that we've done for ourselves and be able to now see the changes within us. It's the inner work that manifests to the outside. That's right. And I like the, the uh, idea that it starts first with yourself. And, and indeed, if you have children, you got to look to yourself. Sometimes even before you look to your partner, especially if you're a single-headed household, you got to look to your children. Ochon, you look like you have something to say, beloved. Oh, um, yes, I was I was agreeing with everything. That was that. I, I think Baba, anything. Let me see. Well, 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 everything just came so spot on. Um, yeah. I would say um, as far as speaking through um, the generational curses, it does take the internal work because in, in breaking it, um, and us doing the internal work, as you said, for generations of those who may come behind us, um, that in turn sets them up more for success because that takes away a, a struggle that they don't have to face. Mm-hmm. Whether, for example, it's um, in, infidelity in a family with marriages or something like that, or someone went through it and seen their father do it, they saw their uncles do it and stuff like that. So they, in turn, inadvertently get a gauge of what they feel is how they're supposed to deal with people that they, ha- they meet as far as relationships. And that's okay because not only did they see the males doing this, but they saw their partners accepting it 
and there was no change. So in essence, that person, their struggle now is yes, this is how they think it should be, but their internal work could be, you know, finding out that, listen, you, what you put out is what you get back. You know, it, it's reciprocity. It's treating a person how you would want to be treated, being understood, being listened to. They have to do the work to get the real understanding of a true relationship. That's with anyone, not just as far as a partnership. That's with anyone. Because, therefore, they, they won't be able to have a successful relationship, whether it's relationship or friendship. So that may be the inner work that they need to do. So it, that's why it's so important because in time, should they have children and they see them doing it, the cycle is going to continue. So it may be uncomfortable. It may hurt. But that's where standing in that pain, I saw someone say that. That's powerful. Standing in that pain, not running. Just like we say about the word fear, uh, you said you can face everything and run, or it can also be false evidence appearing real. It may not be always what it seems or what you feel, but are you willing to stand in that pain, in that uncomfortableness, and do that work to bring about that change? So, therefore, there's no dodging it. There's no avoiding that subject. There's no not going to this place because you're facing it. You're doing the work. And as Baba said, from the inside out, that's where you're going to see the results. Because if you're not doing it for yourself and you can't give it to yourself, you will certainly not have it to give to anyone else. About children, anyone. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. And, and I agree with the goat writer, uh, the master builder. And if I may add just one word to your to your statement, uh, the lack of emotional IQ, particularly with men, is a major issue and cause and root of not being able to break these generational curses. And, and I think Craig Burns. Uh, kind of understands that now from from communicating, you know, with some of the other people in the chat. You know, I applaud you, and I'm sympathetic to to a man, you know, who has more than one partner, you know, die, and, and then you're left, you know, again, to be mom and dad. But, but in our culture, you know, I, I don't quite know a whole lot about the UK, but in mm-hmm. our culture here, um, men are not given that skill. Men are not taught that. Men are not taught to be emotional. Men are not taught to be sensitive. Men are not taught to operate from your feelings, operate from your heart. You know, we're taught to operate from our body, from our head, from our mouth. And we're often very detached from our heart. Now, now in the LGBT community, um, it's a little different. Now, now, there is some soft space sometimes that we can rest in. There is that sort of uh, nurturing element uh, to the community. But, but again, as I think about that last epi- that, that episode of Pose, uh, Take Me to Church, uh, there's so much dysfunction that we bring to the community from what we witness within the dynamics of our family. And so sometimes you see, you know, the gay or the lesbian trying to create relationships that emulate these broken heterosexual relationships that we grow up in. That, that we witnessed, that, that we are a part of. Um, I knew from a very young, I knew from kindergarten. Um, so another point that uh, Iyana brought up in that, uh, in that episode was the number of black men who are expelled and suspended from kindergarten. From kindergarten. That was me. My mama's in the room somewhere. She, she, that was me. I was 
suspended and expelled from kindergarten. I, I was too precocious. I was not socially acclimated. You know, I, I don't know what they said. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember what my mother shared with me at the age of 30 about, about that incident, um, being having your tongue tied at a very young age. And sometimes that's, again, duplicated within the dynamics of the family. Shut up, boy. Ain't nobody talking to you. Kids should be seen and not heard, you know. And, and so we pass down these limericks and these ways of being and these ways of saying, often so subconsciously, without any complete awareness in the moment. And as uh, Goat Rider uh, suggested, it, it's really about a lack of emotional IQ. And to make that real basic, being able to operate from your heart, from your heart, which requires you to feel, which requires us to feel. What is it about feelings that are so much scarier than, you know, running into the thug on the street corner? <laughs> you know, what makes feelings so much more, you know, horrifying for us to walk through, as Otan said, you know, then the threat of physical embodied danger that we're all in in the Western world every day you get in a car, every day you get on public transportation, every day you go out in, in, into the hood, you know. And so we guard that heart, thinking that, you know, we can create some kind of Teflon uh, exterior and so that anything in the future that comes just sort of bounces off of that. But, but in erecting that guard, that Teflon guard, you're also locking in the problem. You're also shutting in and holding on to the block, the emotional block. Um, so come on in, y'all. Uh, my, my phone lines are open. Um, Erico 504, your phone line is still open. So if you decide you want to speak, um, please just, just come on in. And I invite others to call area code 845-277-9143. And only push the number one on your telephone keypad if you have a question, comment, or request. And, of course, you can... Hello? Yes, caller. Come on in. Who's calling? Hi. Yes. Um, My name is Kelly, and phone's acting up, obviously. Um, I have something to share, but also a question. Sure. Um, it's one which you would prefer to to hear, but talking about breaking, um, regards to a cur- breaking the curses, I have it's one it, good things on one side of the family, and I've I'm carrying still curses from another side of the family, and it's it's racking me hard right now. Uh, <laughs> not even the good things can't without being covered up with tar, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but in regards to, I do know what it feels like to have a curse released. And it was amazing. If you don't mind me sharing this. Um, Please. It was something that I was just, I was in the kitchen by myself cooking. I was all by myself, just quiet, thinking, of you know, whatever it was, something positive or if anything, nothing at all. And it, it hit me from the right side. I had this huge, huge flood of gratitude, of thank you, something outside of myself thanking me because I had just broken up and thrown out my now ex-husband at the time. And um, 
and it was, I just I said it's enough. This is you know what's acceptable, and what's not acceptable, and it was no, no no longer acceptable. And so I just simply did it, and it was done. And and it had just a few days before, and I was done. You know, once you're done, you're done. Well, then all of a sudden, I thought maybe it was from it was my mother's side, my mother. Then maybe then it came in another energy. My grandmother, I guess well, maybe it was my grandmother, and then all of a sudden it was so powerful, I had to leave the stove, turn the stove off, and lean into the, I mean, hold on to the sink. I literally felt like I was being flooded with such feminine energy of gratitude because I had broken curse, contracts, however, you know, whatever words you want to use for not just myself. Maybe it was on my mother's side, but it was a lot of feminine a lot of a lot of entities, feminine um, entities that had experienced that, and I had broken the the, the abuse line. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that's a blessing. That, that's mm-hmm. a blessing, and we certainly appreciate you uh, sharing your story. Uh, please stay with us, and, and if you have any any other comments or questions that you might want to ask or share, um, just feel free to just pop on in. Um, we'll we'll make room for you. I also want to – go ahead, beloved. No, thank you. No, I was just telling you thank you very much. And can I – if it's okay, what neighborhood are you from? Uh, From the the mid-city area. Oh, okay. I I love when my 504 callers come on in. Thank Uh you, New Orleans. Yeah, we got New Orleans in the house on the phone and in the chat, and and I'm grateful. Uh, Thank you. Go ahead, Otani. I would like to say – to her firstly that that is beautiful, that is wonderful work, and that is literally an example of breaking a generational curse and the work that needs to be done. It is simply understanding, and sometimes it's not understanding, but realizing what's not good for you, what no longer serves you. Sometimes we may have ancestors that have went through certain traumas and things in the past that we may not have heard of. So it was just those actions of learning to love ourselves and to make those changes that could inadvertently Wake something that you didn't even know was there. And I give thanks for that. That is beautiful. I just want to thank her for that. That's beautiful. Uh, does anyone want to address Free to Nun's question? How do you differentiate between generational curses and generational patterns? I might look at it in terms of length and how many generations we can kind of go back. When I say length, like, when I notice in myself that maybe I'm following a, a pattern that my parents have done in their way of thinking, especially since I was raised by grandparents, so not, I'm not talking about one generation back. I'm actually talking about two generations back. So some of the perspective of their view of different things uh, pattern the way that they raised me. And so now when I'm raising my daughter and I'm watching and I'm listening to myself, sometimes I have to go back and recalculate my thought process, my thought process in what I'm saying and how I'm operating and how I'm doing things in terms of raising my daughter. Generational curse, I believe in the difference of that, would go back further and it would be something that uh, maintained from, from generation to generation to generation 
in a negative fashion that that absolute and, and I guess you can still say pattern. So it's hard to really separate them because a pattern and, and, and you look at curses, it could be something deeper than a pattern. Right? Deeper than a pattern. Maybe a pattern is something that you can recognize, while a curse might not be something that you can fully recognize, but you know it's something that is affecting negatively uh, the, the generations that have, have, have come to be. I agree with that. I would add to, to sort of fill in that, you know, you said it could be uh, deeper than that to the next level. Uh, for me, that, that's what marks a generational curse. Uh, it's a pattern beyond um, something that you can see, feel, and touch. Often you're not aware of it. Often we're in denial of it. And 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 not only would I agree with you in terms of length of the pattern, um, severity, severity. Um, bad eating habits might be a pattern. Um, not quite understanding money and how to operate with money and and have a healthy relationship with with money could very well be a pattern. Uh, but, but when we look at violence, abuse, addiction, rape, molestation, we're talking about generational curses where that pattern is not stopped. Because see, it's in our, it's, it's in our human DNA of survival to stop the pain. I asked that question early on in this show. Why, why do we accept pain? Why do we continue on in the name of the kids or in the name of love when, when you're going through hell and you're in pain? There very well could be a generational curse, not just a pattern attached to that. I also want to comment, um, not in the negative or the positive cousin, uh, both of my cousins on screen, but you described something that's common in the Broomfield side of my family, children that were raised by the grandparents. My father was raised by his grandparents, and I still don't know why. I still don't know my grandmother's story, his father's story, my grandfather. I still have no idea what their story was, what their pain was, what their challenges were, and how he ended up being raised in, in that environment. And, and he did not speak. He does not speak very well of having grown up with his grandparents. Uh, there were a lot of kids, I think 13, um, and they lived on a plantation, not a white man's plantation. The Broomfields owned this plantation and had all these kids that worked the fields, that picked cotton, that had to walk five miles to school every day. These, these are stories I had to hear at, at, dinner, at dinner time, you know, chopping wood, getting up in, in the dead of winter, but you got to chop that wood and get that fire going, you know, before you can do anything, before you can cook, before you can heat water. I grew up hearing sort of these aspects of the story, but, but the, the details, the pain, the emotion was stripped away from the storytelling, but then showed up in the abuse that he mm. inflicted on me and Wapani and, and my other siblings and, and the other mothers that are now that are you know now involved uh, i say now because it's it's eternal you know we we have the choice to break the curse but i don't think we have a choice to not remember once we know i don't think we have a choice to forget once we know because in that remembrance you then can better prepare your children 
better protect your children, better protect yourself. It's when we're not in the know. And this often comes, you know, with the callers and the clients, you know, what's going on? My life is in the shambles. Help me figure out why. Um, I have an example. I won't give any identifying uh, markers. Um, The caller's mother had six children. The caller's mother was a crackhead. The the caller's mother died young from an opioid, uh, you know, an opioid addiction or or pills, I should say, is how it was described, uh, from pills. And now the caller the child of one of these six siblings, now has four children. Um, her tubes are not tied, so the possibility of her having another child is still possible. Um, she's been in several abusive relationships. The relationship that she called me about that she wanted to fix and repair, abusive. And I don't mean just, you know, we fought. I mean the police was called. It's paperwork. It's, it's domestic violence uh, that has occurred. Uh, that sort of repeated pattern. So I asked, is that a curse or is that the repeating of a pattern? And sometimes uh, the children don't have to be witness to the pattern because it's in their blood. So when I look at my own siblings, beyond me and Wapani, my mother's two children, and I look at my other siblings, um, some of which didn't grow up with him at all, or had very limited exposure to him, have so much more of his negative attributes than even I do, who grew up in the house with him. So when I think about a pattern, you got to see it, you got to witness it, you got to then internalize it, you got to be a part of it. When I think about a curse, you might be completely disconnected from the source. You might be completely disconnected from the origin. And and depending on how egregious, I hope I'm saying that word right, the issue is within the family, abuse, rape, molestation, incest, those things get pushed deep, 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 deep back in the closet. And no one wants to talk about that. No one wants to discuss that. And, And another sign that it might be a curse is when your mama has written three books and your sister has written three books. And I have told the story, and yet there are family members that still ingratiate him, that still treat him like some kind of God, that still treat him like some kind of prince, you know, who bought refrigerators, who bought hot water heaters, who bought, you know, window air conditioning. Remember now, most of the family I'm talking about live in the cotton field of Mississippi, didn't have plumbing until the last... 20 years, didn't have a lot of quote-unquote amenities, so he played on that, and and, and it was my mother's money, let me be clear, (laughs) it was my mama's college-educated, educator's income that bought the new cars, that bought the new suits, that, that bought all this equipment that he then subsequently bought for his family, and so now he has none of that, doesn't have my mama's income, driving a a beat-up pickup truck, but he's still dressed like Steve Harvey. You know, when you see him at the funeral, he's still looking and dressed like Steve Harvey, orange suit, hat, you know, gator shoes to go along with it, you know. And and the family, 
which is why I still have a problem with, with the Broomfield Harris branch of the family. Um, they act like ain't nothing happened. They act like me and my mama need to just get over it. In fact, forgive me, mama. He had one of his older Jehovah Witness cousins. She's probably in her late 70s, maybe early 80s. Called my mother and then put him on the phone. Now, my mom ain't talked to this man in 20 years. <laughs> They've been divorced 20 years. And he had the audacity to say out of his mouth, well, you still my wife in the eyes of God. Negro, what about your first two wives? What about the third wife that, that we still don't know what happened to her? What about the mother of all these some, somewhere upwards of 20 kids? Well, what about those women? Why my mother? Well, why target my mother? So is, is it a pattern or is it a curse? Is, is, it, is it a repeated behavioral pattern or is it some kind of spell that we allow ourselves to fall into, that we allow the whole family to get involved in these? Because see, these situations don't happen without complicity from the entire family. Because if a relative doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, oh, no, you're not going to do that, not on my watch. Man or woman, if, if a great auntie had stood up, if a great uncle had stood up, if a grandparent had said, oh, no, not on my watch, Joe, where your son? What you mean you don't know where your son is? Because they didn't know where I was for 10 years. If a family member had stood up and said that, now we're ready to break this curse. But as long as the family remains quiet, remains separated, remains distant, and that's why I don't know a lot of these first cousins and second cousins and third cousins that's showing up in my Ancestry.com. Because at some point, your parents decided to move you away from this drama to, to another country, to another state, to another region, and you, you start over again anew as if nothing happened. And, and if it doesn't show up on the surface of your life, you know, addiction, behavioral issues, you know, how you handle your money, how you handle your relationships, there's no guarantee that, excuse my profanity, shit rolls downhill. There's no guarantee that it does not then show up in one of your children if you don't put a stop to it. If you're not cognizant enough up here to know, okay, this is a pattern. This is a problem that won't be me and that won't be my children. So as I'm being, well, the day before I was expelled from, from kindergarten, you know, we're sitting in a circle. they asking the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to have kids. That's what I said. And so, yeah, this child got a problem. We need to get him out of this environment. <laughs> Now, my mom says they were just too slow for me. She put it in chat. They were just too slow, and um, I've always operated from the soul level. I always had, and that's one of the things that disturbed my dad the most was that I maintained my sensitivity, that I maintained my softness. You know, the thing that some dads try to beat out of your gay son. Oh, you're not going to be soft. You're not going to be no punk. Now, he never used those words, never. 
My dad never said anything really homophobic in my presence ever, but it was clearly demonstrated in his behavior. And, and to look at a dad, whoever your dad might be, as your hero, your leader, your model of who you're supposed to be as a man, I couldn't follow that. Oh, yeah, I couldn't follow that. Even from an early age, I knew I wasn't going to have any children. I wasn't going to have all these wives, all these women. I I wasn't going to be a user, an abuser, or a manipulator. And some of you have said the same thing. When my mom was a crackhead, I'm never going to do drugs. You know, when my dad drunk, I'm I'm never going to drink. That was that's another curse in the family. Alcoholism. I might have a sip of a drink every now and then. That's it. Two sips and I'm asleep. And there ain't no drunk. <laughs> Two sips and I'm going to take a nap. You know. But again, when I look at my siblings. Who, who didn't grow up with him, but were, were exposed to some degree to the toxicity of him, that alcoholism is present. You know what the big word is? The big word is trauma. And we've talked about it in the past and how trauma then manifests the mental health. So within all of this, this not only deals with behavioral issues, but it deals with mental health issues. And in order to deal with this on a on a, a, a level of healing, that means we have to address it from a variety and diverse standpoints. We have to deal with it from the behavior issue and what caused the behavior issues. What was it maybe that I seen, experienced, or heard, or any of those things that had me to think, it's okay for me to act like that or to speak like that or any of the above. Maybe what was it that I seen uh, my parents do or elder brothers do that they, didn't, they, they were never put in check for or, or uncles or aunts, aunts or any of the above, right? So now we've got to deal with it from a behavior aspect. Then we got to deal with it from a mental health and, and, and uh, uh, the mental aspect. We even might have to deal with it from the emotional aspect, right? Mental and emotional sometimes coincide together, but sometimes there are that separate entities. My, my mental health could be something based on trauma that was so deep that I really can't break out of that feeling or that thing. even with me going to appropriate therapy, doing the stuff with my Ori or whatever, it still seeps deep and I still got much work to do. And then emotional-wise, one of the feelings that I'm not really able to maybe uh, even, I I don't want to say relate to, but uh, to acknowledge, right? And now it comes into all over my life in terms of the the generational trauma. Because all of this caused trauma, which is a, like an injury. It's an injury, right? We call a tra- uh, injury a trauma. So then a trauma is an injury of mind, body, spirit, soul, spirituality, and all of those things because they all coincide. And, and depending mm-hmm. on the depth of the injury, it's much harder mm-hmm. to see. Correct. 
Correct. You know, we all watch mm-hmm. on TV and, and you see the accident, you know, and well, they have internal bleeding. They might have internal injuries that, that we can't monitor out here on the street as paramedics. We got to get them to the hospital so that they can have x-rays and tests and, and, and et cetera. So depending on the depth of the injury, and that's why I say even to some degree the, the depth of the, the, the negative behaviors, those things get tucked away. Now, again, if, if I may, my mom probably doesn't mind. Uh, now, my mother's mother was married four times, four times. So I can see, I'm going to speak for my mother, this is my opinion. I can see my mom saying, oh, that's not going to be me. You know, I'm going to go to college, get an education, and I'm going to marry the man of my life, you know, and I'm going to stay married, you know, all my life. And that's what she did for the most part. And then you add religion on top of that, you know, the divorce is a sin and Oh, no, they're they just trying to break up the black family. Don't let them do that to your family. That, that's what they told me and my mother. That, that's what the pastor told me when I was in the custody of the state. They're they just trying to break up the black family. You, you just can't let this happen. And even while all of that was going on, the family was silent. That's that wall of silence. The church was silent. That's that mm-hmm. wall of silence. And those things then become generational curses. Generational curses. Uh, Craig, I, I just don't want to get too personal with you on, on this call, but you're, you're demonstrating my, what, what I'm saying just, just through your words. And how does someone endure that kind of pain? If you, if you knew at a young age that you didn't want to be around your parents, there was a problem there. And don't share it, please. Don't type it. Don't share it. But, but you're already suggesting there was a problem with your parents. And quite possibly a problem from their parents, so much so that you left home at the same age that I did and risked going out into the world. Now, the difference is I knew I would never have kids. This ain't got nothing to do with being gay. I'm talking kindergarten, y'all, five years old. I don't want no kids. Where do you want to be when you grow up? I don't want to have kids. What five-year-old says that? Really? You're still in the realm of fantasy and, and illusion and imagination and creativity at five if you're in a, in a normal, healthy environment. So by age five, I knew the depth of the trauma. Mm-hmm. I, this was long before the beatings and the violence came. I knew the depth of the trauma. And so, uh, Craig Burns, if, if you don't or did not address that directly, and then you have children and two of those mothers pass, you are walking container of trauma. Now, my prayer is that you've done the work or are doing the work, and yes. so much so that you make your children a part of that process so yes. that they, too, will then not repeat some of the very things that you ran from, will not respond in a similar way, you know, moving forward. So I appreciate your commentary. I do. I can feel the depth of your pain. I can. And, and I just pray that, um, yeah, you've had, you've had time to sort of look at that. Um, also, Ashley um, Allen from Louisiana. I love my Louisiana. Um, she said it started with a deep look into myself. That's where I started. 
Uh, you know, after years of being on the run uh, as, a, as a teenage runaway, a, a throwaway, because uh, I was a throwaway. My, my parents weren't responding, did, didn't care to respond. My father prevented my mother from even answering the phone mm-hmm. if I called if, if he wasn't there. This is back mm-hmm. at the time when you got phone bills that came in, in the mail every month. And yeah, I, I couldn't even call the house without leaving a footprint. So mm-hmm. that's how I confronted it. I knew the depth of my pain. I could see the depth of the pain of the people in the environment that I was now in, on the street. And like Ashley, I, I, and like uh, uh, the goddess and many others in the chat, I knew that was not going to be me. I said, oh, no, that was not going to be me. And I'm not suggesting that it's been an easy journey. I've been to more than one therapist, more than one psychologist, more than one Babalao, more than one Hogan more than one church, more than one evangelist, more than one healer, more than one saint, more than one friend. And it, and it took a combination of that experience. My godmother, Mama Yeye, may she rest in room to say, baby, that's now part of your ebo. That's now part of your ebo. You know, that's, that's now part of your sacrifice. It's now part of your, your work. So I don't feel anything negative about my journey to breaking the curse. I'm just glad I was able to do so. Oh, God, I'm free. <laughs> that, that song, that praise song, you know, yes, I'm free. And, and I'm going to tell you, I had to watch that episode twice. It was very hard for me to watch. It was too much that was familiar. It was too much that was pulled out of my own life, the way the pastor acted, the way the other church members acted knowing that there are other people in that community just like me who chose to lie, who chose to hide, who, who forced themselves into artificial relationships, only to come back later and, and apologize. Oh, I should have been there for you. I should have seen. I should have helped. You know, uh, that was a very touching thing for me. Uh, you all have heard me say that there was a time in my life, you know, you couldn't play gospel music around me at all. I wanted no reminders of that environment. So that episode, that that title name, and then that choice of song was very emotional for me. And, and I'm in and I'm in agreement. I'm free. I'm so free today. <laughs> I can't tell I think you. church. I think church for a long time has done a lot to cause injury and trauma to many people, and especially the old church. The old church was extremely rigid. The old church, everything was a sin. The old church, where you were rebuked for everything that you was doing. The old church, where everybody's going to hell if they don't live a perfect life. The old church, where the teachings were so... And, and, and I'll say this. A lot of the old preachers did not have any type of seminary that they went to. Their particular seminary was what the elders taught them, and then they came back and started preaching and teaching uh, to 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 their you know to their particular flock. They did not know how to how to deal with people who was going through family issues. Their particular sentence was let let's let's see what scripture says and not deal with it from other sides, which maybe can coincide together, 
or or appreciate each other's view and work in unison, but there was no they didn't have the experience of having to uh, of being able to deal with family issues, with sexual preferences or or with with anything that was outside the realm of what they knew about just preaching, well, and especially in the holiness churches. Instead, they thought that healing was going to be pulling you up to the altar and gathering around you and embarrassing you and then telling everybody that you, you don't listen to your mother, you don't do this, you don't do that, and, and, and thinking that that embarrassment and that, uh, uh, I want to say, affliction of pain, of mental pain, was not going to bring trauma. So I believe that much of the old church caused a lot of trauma because people then felt that they couldn't go back to that environment and be able to speak to anybody or else they were going to be condemned. Single parents being condemned. Just recently uh, out in Detroit, uh, Wyman's, he refused to... to uh, um, you know what? What? what that uh, uh, birthing the birthing thing for a child. Uh, when uh, when they do it at the, for the child and they put the, the, the water in the baptism. No, not baptism. The, Christianity. The Christianity. Christianity. He didn't want to Christian uh, Christianize the uh, the baby because the parent was single. You know, so a lot of the old ways of of that church that's still come on today. They still cause trauma. So what the hell is that lady going to do when she believed in her heart that church was her path and her direction? So we look at, and and it's not just church. I don't want to just say it as church. Because in Islam, they got their own stuff going on. In Judaism, they probably got their own stuff going on. In African traditional religions, they got their own stuff going on. Because in each one of them, the people are not dealing with their personal issues. And if you don't deal with your personal issues, then you damn sure can't can't, uh, uh, be be pushing others to deal with them because it even makes yours stand out even more. Um, Goat Rider, the Master Builder, uh, asks, how can ATR traditional African-based religious systems assist with dealing with this issue? I, I think that answer is uh, specific to the past and in, in some cases even specific to the house. Now, and now I know for me and, and many of uh, the, the people in the chat can, can bear witness, we don't do nothing with our ancestor work and divination in my house. That's, that's number one for me. Um, number two is la vetette in, in, in French, ori or ivory in, in ifa, and that's how we govern our head, how we operate from a point of point of our head, and it's in that head work, along with your ancestors, because your ancestors are your front line of defense, your ancestors are your first witness, your ancestors are in your blood, and and, and Craig, that's a continuation of my answer to your question: Is it them or is it you? I said it's both because it's in your blood. So the behavior of your parents and your grandparents is in your blood. 
whether you manifest that directly or not, it's in your blood. And sometimes they don't show up as a repeating of behavior or pattern, but cancer, diabetes, our problem, it shows up as other things. And then in, in the case where it does skip a generation, move on to the children, addiction, trouble with the law, you know, other disabilities, you know. So how we deal with it in ATR, you've got to have a secure foundation. And I like what Ashley Allen said. It started with me. I begged out. I cried out, as many of, of you have. I argued with God about that book about these people that was representing him, I argued with God about that. And and I did it for a number of years in, in my late teens going into my 20s. And every time I did so with earnest, not just to vent some emotion, expecting some kind of response from the creator. Because, see, I wasn't going to be able to believe. I wasn't going to be able to accept. I wasn't going to be able to operate in that if God could not show me itself, you know, without the middleman. And every time I prayed that, every time I prayed that, God pointed right back at me. Your answer, uh, uh, Ashley, it starts with who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And so that's why in my house, ancestors are first. They're in your blood. They were there at the point of insemination before you develop personality. Your ancestors were already present. And then your head, your consciousness, if you're not clear, if you're not healthy, if you're seeing life through, through clouded glasses, dark glasses, rose-colored glasses, glasses tainted with pain, then you're not going to see clearly. You're not going to see the blessing right in your face. And so I couldn't, at that moment in my life, I couldn't see the blessing, which was I survived. I escaped. I got away. I was living in New York City at the time on Fifth Avenue on the 110th floor of my building. <laughs> okay. I, I couldn't have been more satisfied. In, 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 world, in the world's perception, had a great job, great location. I was young, you know, partying, you know, but that depression and, and that trauma was ever-present. That's the one time I was I was most suicidal in my life, and and I wanted to jump out of that building. I, I, I wanted to I would go out that balcony and think about it often. So God spoke to me loud and clearly. Who are you? Where did you come from? And so that started my journey first through the Bible, and of course the Bible takes you right back to the Middle East in that region of the world. Then I wanted to better understand Kemet, Egypt, as, as many of you in the room have done. And then that led me to West Africa, to my family. Me and my cousins don't like to say tribe. So to my family, to my ethnic group, groups with an S, so to who we are. Because in this journey of DNA, I've also learned I got some 360 sets of grandparents between right now and this time and space and potentially when my family first left that continent, coming here. So it's easy to not know the root of the problem. It's easy to not see the root of the problem. 
And then as my cousin suggested, when that's duplicated, repeated, generationally, it becomes the norm. Oh, but that's how men act. That's how women act. This is what families do. This is what it looks like. You know, and, and we can't even perceive a different reality. We, we can't even perceive that we have an option. We can't even perceive that we have a choice. You don't have to walk in this generational curse. You don't have to carry this, this repeated pattern. But, but when you're clouded in vision and your head ain't clear, you can't see that. And, and unfortunately, when you are in the depths of your negativity, when you're in the depths of your depression, that's really all you can see. That's all you can see. That's all you can feel. Nobody's good words sound good to you. Oh, well, you just don't understand. That's the biggest lie right there. That's the biggest illusion right there. Oh, you just don't understand. Oh, oh, it's only happening to me. No, that's an illusion. It's not only happening to you. It's not just you. It has absolutely happened to others around you. But when you're in that dark place, you can't see the light. And then you start doing things like keeping the shades down during the day. (laughs) You know, not getting up out of your bed for hours of the day, which forces your body to mimic the, the feelings of depression. That becomes normal for your body to, to not move, to not be active, to not be exposed to the sun, to, to not get out into the world. So it's hardest sometimes with the clients to reach the clients who are in that dark place. And, and we as, as spiritual leaders and healers have to pull these people out into the sun expose this to the full daylight. And that's where the shadow work begins. That's where giving responsibility, giving, giving uh, to, to those who, who, who created and who came before, part of ancestral acknowledgement. We don't just acknowledge our ancestors because they're kings and queens and gods and goddesses. We also acknowledge that which has gone wrong. We also acknowledge that which we don't want to repeat. In Buddha, we pour libation on the ground and feed those ancestors on the ground because we don't want them to get up. We want them to be still, to be quiet, to be healed, to move on in, in the spirit plane, to, to their next journey, to their next location. That's not the same as those ancestors that we want to intervene in our business. That's not the same thing as Egungun. I don't think troublesome ancestors manifest in Egungun um, masquerade. Do they, cousin? Uh, you know, you have two. You have a goon. A goon would be our personal, and a goon goon would be would be ancestors as a whole. So in our a, in our personal a goon, it, it's kind of like uh, we with with uh, with my cousin has said in terms of feeding them and all of that. And then part of it is also to acknowledge the pain or the the trauma or the things that ancestors have gone through. Some of us have had difficult relationships with ancestors while we were alive, but in their transition, we also have to remember that they've elevated in consciousness, and now we should still be uh, reaching out to them because they sometimes are the ones that will help them, you know? So we, we do have to work very close with our ancestors. One of the only things that I see a little bit different, and, and, and that is, in, as, as he knows, 
in our temple, we, we start with Ori, then we go to ancestors, then we go to to, to Ephah. That's the only thing that we do maybe a little bit. But everything else that you said is is an exactness, as well as one of the, the things that ATR can do in assisting is when you go to the to the Babalao, when you go to the Alua, if the Alua has experience with certain things, like my experience was 20 years of mental health. So those that are going through some challenges with mental health, when I pull an Odu, I can therefore speak to the experience in that Odu of what it's saying about mental health as well and how to be able to assist somebody in that mental health capacity within the, the, the message of the thought towards that person. And I think you can too, uh, cousin, because in going through the Odus, the Odus give us deep messages, but then as we have the connection with Odu, we then can say, ah, this person came in autumn. That means they're going through this particular challenge. So now this is the ticket. This is the, the path that you can take step by step. And then each, you know, this, these things, if you do this, then by this stage, you'll see and, and, and see a difference and feel the difference. Sometimes you can feel it before you see it. Sometimes you, 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 uh, you see it before you feel it. And then sometimes they work in unison together, which is the best, because then you're like, ah, I see it and I feel it. This is this is sensational, you know. So it's it's really an individual uh, journey, and you hope that the elder, the babalao, the Alua, or whatever, is one that has the experience enough to be able to talk to that truth that you need to hear in that uh, place of healing that you're looking for. Does that make sense? Absolutely, I agree. You know, one of the most shocking moments, um, uh, Otun, you're going to be next. One of the most shocking moments in in the course of a reading, with me anyway, is is when we do have to cross that bridge. You know, how then, you know, the, the skilled practitioner has to find the words has to find the, the way of, of saying and speaking and suggesting that sort of leads the client to the place where they're ready to sort of drink from that cup of knowledge. They're not always expecting you to talk about their mental health. They just want their boyfriend back. They're not always ready to talk about patterns, you know, within the dynamics of their family. You know, they just want to hit the lotto. You know, so I think when, when you're when you are dealing with a skilled, experienced practitioner, and particularly elders, um, that's a part of our job. It's a final way of speaking to and addressing that trauma. Now, now I presented a little scenario earlier about the the girl whose mama had six kids, who was a crackhead, and you know, and she didn't know she had no clue mental health was going to come up in that consultation at all. Um, thank God, you know, most most often than not, they're willing to hear it and they're willing to see it. But it takes a great deal of eloquence and skill and experience to speak to those those areas, particularly in our community where discussions of mental health is not very popular. 
you know, discussions of how men act and how women act is not very popular in our community. So, so it takes some skill to even get a client to that place to want to look at that, that dark area, that gray area of their own ethnic body that ties them to that trauma, to, to, to that abuse, to that negative encounter. And it's so easy for people to say, well, I don't know, and I'm good, and it's, it's not me. It's absolutely everybody outside of me. But we create and recreate our reality. We create and recreate our reality with our mouth, with our heart, and with our head. And we often draw experiences to us so that we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. And when those experiences that keep repeating themselves, it's something that we're not willing to see. It's something that we're not willing to open up to in, in that process. I think ATR um, is probably in many ways better than, quote, unquote, religion in addressing uh, these kind of issues because there is that component of real life, life on life terms, nature, and how we operate, you know, within the dynamics of nature. And then there's a whole other level of, of, of quantum metaphysical science that's embedded in these traditions. We don't call it that. We don't say that's what it is. But when you look at what we do and who we are, you know, honestly, uh, there's a whole level of quantum metaphysical science. You all might call it magic. Th- that's mm-hmm. happening when the Oloye or the Iya, you know, is able to bring you to a place of healing, sometimes even without you knowing. Sometimes you have to sort of, I hate the word trick. I got to come up with a better trick, a better word. But sometimes you have to trick people into doing things for their own good. And, you know, sometimes you've you got to give your child that, that medication, and so you wrap it up in fruit or you wrap it up in something sweet. You know, you, you add it to a tablespoon of honey, you know, so, so they, they take it a little bit easier. And that's why it's important that the goddess, our queens, our mothers, our wives, learn to operate from your bosom, from your heart. From your heart, and, and, and in doing so, you've got to share your stories. You've got to share your pain. You've got to share your trauma. And, and, and women, you have the power to help these men heal. You have the power to, to grab your man, your husband, your boyfriend, your lover, and, and hold them to your bosom and create a safe space so that they can begin to heal. We're too quick to judge, and that's a Western thing. We're too quick to say, oh, he cries too much. Oh, he's too sensitive. Oh, he broke down. And and therefore, you're creating an environment, a hostile environment, where many men are less likely to share with you then on that level. Mm -hmm. You you make them feel invalidated. Our society already makes black men feel invalidated from the womb. Uh, they try to invalidate me from kindergarten. So being able to share and know that you have that safe space, you know, I'm not talking about the therapist, the psychologist, the minister, the imam, your partner, mm-hmm. and, and, and be able to share from your heart, from your heart. So, so women get reengaged with your bosom. Sometimes that hurt and that trauma and that abuse and unbad relationships cause you to lock up your bosom, cause you to, to now operate like a man and, and, and feel from your head, which is not the most natural place 
particularly for a woman to operate from. Otun, do you want to speak to that, beloved? Um, I would say um, as far as women uh, dealing with the emotional trauma, especially when it's coming from relationships, um, that's why it's so important to do the self-work first. That's why healing is so important. Um, uh, another show that you did, I, I mentioned, you know, healing is important because if you're, if you're not healing, then you're going to end up bleeding on someone that didn't touch you. So, in essence, um, as women, um, we have to understand, uh, first and foremost, when meeting um, or dealing with someone that's potentially going to be someone that you're in a relationship with or someone that you're looking to be in a relationship with, um, Understand that what you see is what you get. When a person shows you who they are, believe it. The first time. The first time. That's right. That's right. Because what women tend to do, what we as women tend to do, because I've done it, is that red flag you see that you want to see so much of that good in that person is going to cause a problem later because it was there. You saw it. And you said, well, you know, a lot of women think that uh, they see some ways in a man and they think they got that stuff that'll change his ways or I can cook this meal or I can wear this thing and put it on him like that. And all you're going to get is disappointed and ran through. Once you're able to look at a person and see where you're meeting them at, what level they are, where is their mind, where is their spirit, there are so many things that we need to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. Get out of that desperation. Learn how to fix you first. We cannot get out of one situation, jump to another, jump to another. No one is healing. And meanwhile, you're carrying that trauma on to the next situation. And it's going and it's going and it's going. And speaking of generational curses and generational patterns, while you're doing all of this, if you have children, they're watching you do it. That's so right. if you have a daughter, she or may be son. thinking that it's all right for a man to do this. Or or it's son. all right for her partner to do that because mommy took it, because mommy dealt with it, because mommy was so strong and mommy didn't walk away, so I need to be strong and not walk away too. Wrong answer. Same thing. I saw daddy do this or I saw daddy do that and mommy didn't go nowhere, so it's all right. It's all right. And this is how it's supposed to go. And no, that may not be the pattern. It may not be the thing or the lesson that we want to teach our children, but they are absorbing and absorbing much, much more than we can even potentially imagine. Yeah. Not just physically and what they're seeing, but mentally, spiritually. They are spoken at all of this, particularly when they're that young, because they have no filter. So they get it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And not just so the girls, the boys, mm-hmm. not just the girls, the boys as well. Yes, and that's why I said yeah. boys too. When you're seeing daddy do these things, then mommy it's or okay. daddy. But I'm saying so, mommy or daddy. Even the, even the, even the single-headed household with it, where there's a mother, and she's got boys and girls, the boys are absorbing it just as well as the girls. That's the point Absolutely. I'm trying to make. Yeah, that's the point yeah, that's, I'm trying to make. That's why I said, even with the boys, they're saying, oh, well, this is what's happening, or mommy's taking this. Okay, so this is what I can do. And then they're not understanding why it's not supposed to be done, because 
That's what they saw. Whether it was being dished out or being received or however they saw it, this for them became the norm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was okay because nothing was ever said or done against it. Mm-hmm. So then that in turn can produce an issue for them because now when someone, they when it's their turn and someone speaks out and they're, they're not understanding, like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. I saw this. This, this, is, this is what I know. And that's where we have to be careful, especially women in doing the work and understand that sometimes we have to take that time for ourselves. It's okay to step back, to take those moments and to be on our own sometimes because we have to learn how to love on ourselves. I keep saying it. You, you can't. You can't give it to someone if you don't have it for yourself. If you don't love you, if you can't look in that mirror and think you're the flyest thing walking since sliced bread, if you don't feel like your body is all right for you, if you don't feel like your hair is like this or your hair is like that, or your body, whatever it is with you, if you can't find that happiness, that satisfaction, that contentment within yourself, you're not going to have it to give it to anyone, a partner, a child, or no one. No one. So it's important, it's pertinent that we do it and healing is important because we want to make sure that we are done, that trauma is handled before we move on and hurt someone that had nothing to do with it and in turn add to their trauma that they may be coming with. Are you, so will, are you willing to share, um, before I move on to Neophyte Bokur, are you willing to share how ATR or how EFI in particular has helped you address these issues personally? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I come from a background of strong, strong women. Um, throughout all of this, the, the, my background of strong women, um, I admire them. I've learned so much. Um, I've noticed issues and have seen issues in, um, on one side of my family line where that's all it was super strong, wonderful black women. Mm-hmm. Had plenty of children. No sorry. And I will say and attest that and seeing in my dealings with different relationships throughout my life, um, there is a such thing as being too strong. Mm-hmm. Because when we allow that strength to cloud judgment, to cloud self-accountability and self-reflection, it then becomes a problem. And where we're not teachable. Well, anytime a person is not teachable, they can't go to no person that is not teachable. So I had to learn um, in dealing with myself that I had to become and be willing to be accountable even when it doesn't feel good. So we all want truth to be pretty wrapped in a bowl of sugar on top. And truth is what it is. And sometimes the truth is ugly. Sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it just downright sucks. But it's going to be what it's going to be. Where it comes in, willingness to look at it, stand in it, see it for what it is, and make the changes necessary because it's not how you start. It's how you finish. Everybody has grown to do. So I just would say I had to learn and grow in that and recognize in myself when too strong was just too strong. There are sometimes we as women, we got to learn how to reel it in. We got to learn how to pull it back. You know, we say, yeah, you want a man to take the lead? You want him to do this? Well, get your hands off the damn range. Mm. Too many chiefs and not enough Indians. We have to learn when is the time to take charge and when it's time to fall back. So 
So I've had to learn that. And it's taken a long time. I'm happy where I am now. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I still have my moments because women may deep and we go bad. So I'm not perfect. But being able to sometimes take that moment and go, all right, you're feeling this, you're hot. Pull it back. You know, so that's something that I work within myself. And, and I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, let me respond quickly before I open up Neophyte Bocour's mic. Um, oh, Fitness Girl Fun says she never knew uh, you could have too much strength. Uh, an immediate example that comes to my mind is the addict that has no bottom. And so they don't feel no pain. They don't feel no consequences. They keep running, keep running, keep running, and they have no bottom. Now, now you might say that's an example of having too much strength, holding on, not, not allowing yourself to feel, not allowing yourself to be sensitive, not allowing yourself to check in with your own feelings, you know, because you have to be completely disconnected from how you feel to, to, to be an addict, a, a long-term addict. You have to be completely disconnected from the repercussions, from how you feel, to what your triggers are. Those are the things that we learn in recovery. What are your triggers? What, what causes you to feel insecure? What causes you to feel, feel weak? Uh, so, yeah, there is a sense of being too strong. There is a sense. Uh, Neophyte Bokor, beloved, uh, before we run out of time, did you have something you want to share? Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I have to pull over for this topic. I mean, uh, talking about triggers and things of that nature, you've got to be clear and focused of mind to be able to even speak on things that, that are your triggers to try to build some, 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 some kind of rapport or conversation with someone else who has their own triggers. And I, I have questions about um, right now what seems to be the hot-button topic for a lot of these different uh, pages that I uh, drop in on are uh, – the triggers between relationships right now. Everyone is seeking love. Everybody is seeking relationships, strong um, kind of moral relationships with a standard that isn't our own, with no spiritual compass to begin with. Our standards are being uh, sort of dictated to us by the, the economy that we're in. So our love interests are based on economic growth without having a spiritual economic growth first and it blows my mind that we have these conversations without actually understanding the traumas that we're uh, passing down to our generation generationally passing down oh like i said i had to pull over and and clear my own headspace out well i appreciate that because there's a lot of people that yeah yeah, it's an emotional one. When people take up uh, valuable mental real estate in your head, you're allowing them to be in your mind space, rent-free. And we're wondering what's going on with our economy, our spiritual economy. Well, these these, these things are, are living off of you and, and feeding off of you for free without addressing the fact that they need to be evicted from your mind space. Um, painting pictures kind of randomly. Um, I'm going to digress for just a moment just so I can take a breather. <laughs> okay, because uh, I want to ask you, because we, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you, how does that show up particularly for men? 
and, and specifically for black men, how does that show up? And, and then how do we address that? Uh, um, emotions. It shows up in, in our, our emotions. We're not necessarily given that space to actually express our emotions. So it turns up in anger or it turns up as the angry, the quote-unquote angry black man. Well, um, I was fortunate to have a father that told me the one thing that you don't hold back is your emotion. My father always had a problem with his emotion, and he told me, like, look, this is what I feel like my problem was. I couldn't express my emotions. I couldn't cry in front of this. My father always was like, look, I don't care how soft they may make you feel or seem like or whatever. Your manhood is your manhood. That ain't going to change. Your DNA is your DNA, and you came out genetically a man. I'm sorry, that's what you came out as. So you don't have to feel what your emotions are. So my father was always an advocate for express yourself. Come to me when you feel like I need to cry for a second. This hurt. I got pulled over today by a cop who handcuffed me for my taillight being out. I need to, I need a shoulder. You know, and we don't, we don't have that. We don't have that sort of safe space as far as men go in this environment that we're in. These, this generation, I feel, still is lacking that safe space to be able to express the, the built up anger that we actually have, the emotion that we have, right? Without being called toxic or being labeled this or labeled that. These are things that definitely need to be talked about, even more so when actually trying to deal with uh, being in a, a relationship that we desperately need. We want our black women. We desperately need our black women in our lives. But more importantly, we need to know that our black woman can be that shoulder without also receiving that judgment from them as well. Just put that off my chest. I'm sorry. (laughs) I digress. I agree. I agree. And my mom says it's easier said than done. But um, she and I and my sister, we're doing the work together. Uh, Mm -hmm. My mom is 78 years old. So there are no excuses, black men. There are no excuses, black women. You know, and if you need help, reach out, communicate. But particularly Mm -hmm. in this space, reach any one of us, you know, on screen, off air, offline, reach out to us. Know that Mm -hmm. you have that, that support. Know that you have that network. Know that you have that family to help you to, to address, you know, whatever the issue, the complication might be. Uh, don't just walk around in, in the wall of silence. Don't just hold it in. Uh, the unfortunate reality is the deeper you hold it in, the more likely you are to pass it on to the next person. I'm grateful. Uh, if, uh, uh, if I could share one last thing, I think it might be uh, um, important. I'll keep it as brief as possible. Um, Holding it in, that part, that part is crucially important. If I'm not mistaken, in our tradition, breathing and the drum, the drums and the breathing and the rhythm in which we speak, um, everything has a, a, a place. And I want to tie that into um, when you're giving birth and you're, you're doing that, that, uh, that the breathing, the breathing technique, that 
that, that breathing technique, that's based off of the same thing that happens when you start crying. That same emotion that's the, that you feel, if, we, if you suppress that, then you're suppressing the actual function of the body. So men, we still have that, that um, we still have that in us that needs to be uh, released as an actual function. You can't stop a hiccup. You can't stop a burp. You can't stop uh, uh, a sneeze. That breathing technique isn't just a technique. It's a function of the body. The body is, is repairing itself. So when you cry, you are actually using a function of the body. So you cannot be ashamed of that. I don't know who taught us that we have to be ashamed of that, but obviously they had an understanding of the function of the body, and they're definitely hindering us from being able to heal emotionally by taking that away. That is a valuable tool. I think that needs to be readdressed um, uh, everywhere. Uh, I guess. And, and Shamafia and Goat Rider, I'm, I'm sure my cousin Oloye Ifawole has many suggestions on how men can come together and release that, that aggression and, and, and that energy. Uh, we talked about it the other day. They, they've taken a great deal of, of gym and physical activities, you know, woodshop, art. It's no longer even in school. So, you know, there is no organized space, you know, for relief. So um, I agree with both of you. Um, and, again, I think um, there are many suggestions that, that my cousin might, might offer, you know, at some time uh, in the near future about how we can, can do that. Um, yeah. So we're going to end. Read your mom's statement. My mom says there are some women that can't cry because of the darkness that has surrounded them. Yeah, and, and, and I equate that to women acting like men in a man's world. And, and I use man loosely. I, I mean man who's not whole, who's not complete, who's not operating in balance. So he operates in aggression and fear. And so the women around him learn that signal of aggression and fear. And so they learn to either respond in aggression or fear or to cower in, in aggression or fear and, and thus suppress themselves, suppress their emotion, suppress their, their ability to communicate from their bosom, from their bosom. So I agree with you. I, I really do. And I thank you, Mom, for your uh, always being present and your contribution to the show. Yes. So we're going to move forward. Uh, I thank you all so much for another powerful edition of Revolutionary Hoodoo. New Orleans Voodoo Secrets and Recipes are welcome to meet us here again at high noon U.S. Central Standard Time next time with my beloved cousins, Otan Ifa Tomiwa and my cousin, Oloye Ifa Wole Ola Deji Ifantade and my beloved co-host, Neophyte Bokor. And I welcome you all back to meet us here again in this shared, shared sacred space. All is a blessing. It took me a minute to uh to hit in there. I'm gonna get her. I told her to stay on for a second. I will sure 
You sure did. And now she's gone. I'm getting her new love. Yeah. So, uh, my 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 Lua seems to have totally went ahead and released me without letting me know nothing. I just got these these things that you know he kicked me out of this group or kicked me out of that and kicked me out of the learning group and all of that. So it would seem that more so at this stage I'm on my own, which I'm a little bit nervous about because that would mean a lot of the uh, backing and a lot of the, the I just want to say a shit that was given. I can see him trying to take a lot of that back. Um, I, I can see different scenarios popping up at a later time. Um, and so uh, I'm not 100% sure what this future is going to hold. I just don't know. I've never been in this position before. Uh, I've been by this dude's side since he started this road, before E5, before he got into E5. So now, you know, I'm looking at it like here I am totally cast out because of stuff that should not have been between us. And so... uh, I just don't know what, I'm not real positive. I'm just not sure at all of what the hell future holds or anything. <laughs> Let me say this, because what you're saying, it just goes all through my body. Uh, <laughs> because I've been here before. I've seen this before. Uh, th- there was a point, I, I want to say maybe four or five years ago, that uh, the Araba sent an edict suggesting that African Americans who had initiated, who had you know come and, and been a part of, of, of the process, have no yes, have no no authority in the U.S. to represent the tradition. So unfortunately, this is new. Uh, I mean, this isn't new to me, and it has a lot to do with why I've settled into Voodoo, Louisiana Voodoo, in the way that I have over the years. Now, I will offer you that. You know, there are other elders out there. There are other Bible laws, you know, in Nigeria out there that you might now have an opportunity to, to communicate with, to connect with, to build with. I still have elders I can reach out to. I still got an Oba I can reach out to. I still got some Bible laws, some Ian Nipas I can reach out to. But in terms of our, you know, feeling that we need their validation, mm-hmm. I might be on a different understanding of that and, and you might be finding your way there <laughs> to where I am but the idea that we need them somehow to validate us or to give us authenticity um, this generation behind us is not accepting that that's why we have all these black witches and, and all these self-made readers they're not they're not even trying to hear that so my goal is not to get in a fight with them not to battle with 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 the edicts from from, you know, or Sogbo or, or wherever they might be coming from, but to ensure that we build a foundation right here so that our people, because they're going to continue to come. They're going to continue mm-hmm. to seek you out for guidance. They're going to continue to seek you out for, for Ifa. And so mm-hmm. we've got to create that foundation for ourselves here in America, just like Cuba, just like Brazil, 
just like mm-hmm. many other places. You know, we treated like the bastard child mm-hmm. still in 2021. We, we treated like the bastard child that needs to go outside of our continent to somehow get reacquainted to what's in our blood. Mm-hmm. And so I've known mm-hmm. from a very young age, I never knew what it looked like. Let me be clear. I didn't know what it was going to look like at 15, at 20, at 30. I just knew mm-hmm. that the ancestors kept pushing me forward. And my reach kept growing. And my ministry kept growing. So I embrace this as an opportunity. I really do. I embrace this as an opportunity for you to, you know, sort of reposition yourself first inwardly mm-hmm. you know, about where you mm-hmm. stand within the dynamics of that system. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't put it down. I wouldn't give it up. I wouldn't stop doing what you're doing. You know, and, and I want to... Uh, a, a volunteer in my opinion, and I may or may not be correct, um, it may absolutely have everything to do with your leadership and your visibility. Because when I look at some of the people that we're referencing, they don't have a whole lot of visibility, mm-hmm. certainly not in social media. Mm-hmm. Their, their reach is not very strong. I can imagine they want that. You know, they desire that. Um, and I get it, you know, the more tourists that come and spend money and, you know, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. But I think just like ministry here in the state, they are neglecting the ministry aspect of EFA, particularly when they're reaching out to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what country the African is from, usually one of my first three questions is, how much do you know about slavery? Mm-hmm. How do you know? How much do you know about the African American experience and how we got from the motherland to where we are today? And that mm-hmm. usually sets a tone for me mm-hmm. in terms of how much homework they've done about us, how mm-hmm. empathetic they are to us, mm-hmm. and thirdly, how much responsibility do they take for us? Because I mm-hmm. believe they have a certain responsibility that they, that they have to accept. Right. Whether it's your ancestors helped participate, whether it's your ancestors, you know, sold their war, you know, booty off, you know, into slavery. There, there's a, a, a lineage-based, heritage-based responsibility that, that they have not quite accepted fully. Now, mm-hmm. I think Ghana is moving in that direction. Ghana has, mm-hmm. Ghana. Oh, Ghana. Ghana yeah, has yeah. open borders for African-Americans dual citizenship mm-hmm. for African-Americans. And again, on the surface, it might just be about tourism. Mm-hmm. It might just be about business on the surface. But I think at a deeper level, and particularly over time, if we keep working at those relationships, Ghana and a few other countries will, will meet us in the middle where people like you and I desire. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I want their respect. I want their love. I want to participate in, in some of their traditions, but I'm not caught up in the idea that I'm somehow less without it. Understood. Understood. I have all of the, before all of this, I was, I, I'm the only one from him that has everything that's needed to stand on a temple. I have, uh, I have Igma Odu, which for us is extremely important and not every Baba Lao gets. So I have Iba Odu, and I have my staff of authority to have my own. Um, but it really wasn't the way that things were supposed to play out, you know? 
there's still things that I have to learn in order to complete to complete my uh, my actual training. So I'm in the process now of trying to figure out where I can go to get this and go get that so that legitimately in my own mind and as a Baba Lao, I'll have the things to complete somebody appropriately to get them to, you know, where they need to, at least up to the point of them going to Tefa. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, right now, you know, this only happened a day or two ago, and I've been sitting on it, like, trying to kind of just, okay, how do I deal with this, and how do I even, you know, without, without really, like, losing it, you know, to deal with this, this, this journey right now. And listen, so, I, feel, I feel a certain sense of responsibility. I do. No, you know, no, 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 no. I hope it's not. I hope he's not the show. I hope he's not feeling some kind of way because he's watched the show. You know, maybe even communicated with the young Baba Lyle who was here. Uh, I, I just hope it's not because of of. of it has nothing to do with that because it was going on before that. I had gotten very very quiet on some things because of the way that I felt I was being treated by some of the chiefs that are in the temple. Even after I was the one who assisted him or put the stuff on them with his authority. And, and I didn't feel a particular, I, I felt that there was a, a treatment that was going on that was not in alignment with respect. So it had nothing to do with the show. It started before that. And then when these ladies from here, from my temple, I helped these ladies. They were a partner. They were a partner. They, they, they were getting married, a lady and a lady. They were getting married and all of that. And I helped them with their Ishefa. They still owe me a thousand dollars. And they went over to him with this big story about, you know, we, we, he told him that this other person was talking about him and he didn't really do anything. They were talking about, I mean, the, the, the other person was talking about me, and I told them, sometimes we don't know a person's story. We have to be able to show grace. We have to be able to show mercy. And we also have to remember the people that helped us. That's right. And then you take off and go over there and give them all types of stories about me, and he accepts them in. So it was, it was more than that. It was me sitting here watching, just literally watching these things and trying to find an appropriate way to handle this. And then when he did that the other day, I was like, you're dealing with people that you've only met a short amount of time? Comparison to the person who is helping you fight everybody through thick and thin, high and low, since before you got into the fight. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with the show. You have absolutely nothing to even. I just wanted to let you guys know in case there's a lot of, in case some negativity starts coming back, like that nigga, he dot dot dot, whatever the case might be, because I'm not going to be responding. And I wouldn't receive it. You know, nobody can say anything about any of my cousins, and I'm just going to receive that. You know, so you, you don't have to worry about that. 
Uh, again, my, my only feeling is this is so familiar. Even um, Baba Awo uh, Ifasakin, may he rest in our room. He went back and forth to Osogbo once a year at least but for 10 years. And he was one of those people that, that, that the Araba sent that cease and desist notice to. So, yeah, I've seen this before. It, it's very mm-hmm. familiar. There's an attempt to sort of, in my opinion, in my opinion, there's an attempt to sort of keep African Americans from really exercising their titles and operating within in their position, you know, within Ifa, without someone there on the continent feeling like they need to get the money or they need to have their hand in, in, involved in it or they need to somehow receive the credit for it. So but he's American. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, the fish thinks from the head down. You know, Mm -hmm. it starts there, and then you see that behavior mimicked within the community, you know, here in the state. So, yeah, I I, I can see a bit of a power struggle there, you know, and and I live it every day. There are many all over the world who ain't happy with what I've managed to do, who aren't happy about the position that I've managed to, to work into, you know, here mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Uh, I set mm-hmm. out to give Louisiana voodoo its rightful place, to, to resurrect it, to stand on the history. I've got historians behind me. I've got archaeologists behind me. I've got universities, you know, here in, in, the, in the city behind me in terms of how we're presenting this. So the unfortunate reality is it's so familiar. I, I've felt this before. I've seen this, this scenario before. And my best advice is for you to stand and to stand tall and, and continue to move forward and, and, and find others, you know, that you can connect with, that you can interact with, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just keep it, keep it moving. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of share with you what was going on, you know, uh, and and let you let you kind of in on on it because I'm not going to be talking to really any people about it. So just letting you know kind of what what what's happening. Yeah, I wish Otan had stuck around for this, but I'll let him know. Yeah, you know, but it it'll be all good. Well, I appreciate you, cousin. I really do. I'm glad you're getting good feedback, too, man. That makes me happy that people are liking the show, and hopefully the feedback is from all over and a lot of different communities. And and surprisingly, men and women, but whole families. Wow. Whole families. And and one couple has promised me that they're going to be on the show. Uh, Oh, that's awesome. uh, Orisha and Chef Bougie. Okay, okay. You know, I Good. feel like we we need an example of healthy black love, healthy black marriages, healthy black relationships on the show. Uh, he's a master chef, so he wants to speak again to, you know, herbs and, and airway and healing and, and what we eat. Mm-hmm. But for me, you know, their example as, as a black married couple and family is, is probably their strongest demonstration. Absolutely. So they're going to make it their business to be here together on screen uh, more often. And they're probably going to be here Excellent. next Monday. Uh, that's Excellent. Yeah, Chef Fuji and Arisha. Um, I've, I've been begging my godchildren to be more visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're so modest 
in that, you know, well, I'm still learning and I'm still on my journey. I don't want to overstep my responsibility, but I'm at a stage with this show in my own life pattern that I feel people need to see the fruit mm-hmm. of yes. what, what I've been standing on for 12 years Absolutely. on the Internet. So I need Absolutely. more of my, my clients and my godchildren to turn that camera on and to speak their truth. So Arisha, um, wonderful woman, her husband is just a wonderful man off mm-hmm. air, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to bring a awesome. whole nother level uh, to the show. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Please give them greetings for me as well. Yes, I will. So let me All move right. forward. I've got to eat lunch. I've got to hydrate. My lips are turning white. I got to get some water. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, always a blessing. Peace. All right, peace. So much Block Talk Radio. You always get a chance to sort of hear the behind the scenes. T la la. And I look forward to meeting you here again at high noon. Congo Square, Congo Square, Congo Square, Congo Square. Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The almost Indians prepared this place for us. Centuries before our arrival. Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our host, the almost Indians, They pushed aside our hosts. The colonizers came and pushed aside our hosts and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Les Places de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow, persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment, but nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French, giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves Save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double 
cross and capitalism the ultimate triple coup de gras cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo! Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us, our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate, a world harrowed by the beat. Be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drums. Heart beat. Heart beat. Heart beat at this place. At this place. Be heart beat. Be we beating place in new world space. Beating being in place in new world preserving our ancient pace our dance is the god walk our music the god talk first thing we do let's get together circle ourselves into community no beginning no end connected together and singing ringing singing in our ring. Second, let's be original, aboriginal. Be what we were before we became what we are. Be bambula dance. Be banza music. And sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. The bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy, must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out of us. But no matter, no matter how much of us they prohibit, no matter how much of us they prohibit, Deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning. A sun day. A feel. A feel. Without shade, but dark, dark 
with the people black of us in various, various, various shades, eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember. To beat, to be, beat, Congo Square, be, Congo Square, beat, be, beat, Remember. Yeah. 